0: Artificial intelligence is one of the hottest topics in business today. But how will artificial intelligence impact business? How will it impact society? What about AI and ethics? So, the next 50 minutes, we're going to dive into this fascinating subject area. My name is Graham Brown from Asia Tech Podcast. To help us unpack that subject, I'm joined by Nell Watson. Nell, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure.
0: Now, Nell, I love the way you describe yourself, machine learning engineer and tech philosopher. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't get a lot of philosophers in tech. Maybe we don't get enough philosophers in technology today. And I'm assuming a philosopher takes the time to step back and think about the implications of philosophy and how it impacts us in the bigger picture. How would you describe yourself? Indeed.
1: We um, we often just kind of uh, assume that... First of all, that, you know, a technology is necessarily um, good in all ways, you know, when typically these things are a bit of a trade-off. You know, technology tends to liberate us, but then a little bit further down the line can kind of hamper us in in other ways as well. So it can be a, a blend, a blend of benefits. And I think, generally speaking, technology opens up new capabilities and is... Generally, a force for good, um, but it can be um, it can be a bit of a, a bit of a trade off at times. And so, one of the things that I find fascinating is looking at the history of technology, and how technology and culture have often come together as a sort of uh, crescending force, which um, often you know one is amplified by the other, and how that tends to change societies. And there's a lot of historical examples that we can look back on to be able to predict, for example, what technology might um, do to our society in the future. And so how we can best position ourselves to use it in an optimal way and perhaps um, offset a few of the um, uh, slightly less positive aspects of it. So that's something that I, I spend a lot of time Um, researching into and trying to gain an understanding of. And I think having a great perspective Hmm. on history really helps with understanding the future as well.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Having a historical perspective predicting the future whether you are thinking about artificial intelligence in terms of society or for your business or your department or your startup, how important it is to step back and look at what patterns have proceeded before us Mm. now how have we been here before if you like to think so it's hard isn't it because in the context of ai everything is new it seems a relatively modern technology we're dealing with computational power that hasn't really existed until very recently and the ability to crunch billions of data sets this is all new so Which makes it especially hard, and I guess this is the purpose of the next 45 minutes and with your help now, for those that are thinking, well, you know, I'm the CTO of this large organization or the CEO of some government department, or I'm starting my startup, or I'm an IT manager or an HR manager, and you're asking me to think about history to understand where AI fits into my day-to-day job. But it does, and hopefully you can help us understand a little bit today. And give us a bit of foresight, understand where we're heading next. Put it all into context. Maybe now we should start by talking about where you got your start, your introduction to AI and machine learning. That helps us put this conversation in a little bit of context, because you're not new to the game. How did you get your start in AI?
1: I suppose artificial intelligence is kind of um an... umbrella term which has been around since you know the the mid 1950s or so and then within that we have subsets such as machine learning and deep learning and then you know we see subsets of deep learning um, such as reinforcement learning and meta-learning now but they all kind of come under a a broad um, auspice of of AI which in its old form was really about things that were were hand coded. For me, machine learning helped me to unlock new capabilities in my career. I, uh, I've i always had a very strong interest in computer science from a, a very young age. I, I even taught postgrad computer science from the age of 24 or so. But around about 2011, I founded a machine vision company. So that's basically a technology company that uses machines understanding of visual information uh, as part of the business process. And the business process was measuring people's bodies. So basically, the idea was that with two photographs, one from the front of the body and one from the side, we could reconstruct the body in 3D with uh, all of the associated measurements of the body in order to uh, fit clothing, for example, and also to track how the body changes over time for health and wellness. And around about 2011, when I was setting the company up, we were just before this real renaissance that we've seen in AI, which which really kicked off around about 2012 or so in a big way, with things like uh, this new form of machine vision technologies built on deep learning called convolutional neural networks, CNNs. Now, before CNNs, we were having to hand code everything. So we would create little programs to try and find people's armpits or find people's crotches or the shins and that sort of thing. And basically, we would we would manage to get a very precisely, very carefully programmed bit of code that would do one of those things, but then it would inevitably break something else. And it was like constantly playing whack-a-mole, trying to <laughs> trying to, to to make this thing work, and it was a bit of a nightmare. And then came the advent of machine learning in this space, or a sort of deep learning version of machine learning, where basically, instead of trying to program everything by hand, which is a bit of a nightmare, you simply introduce lots of examples and get the machine to learn from that. And that made all of the difference, because suddenly, we could do all of this stuff without needing to program it by hand. We could just get the machine to learn for itself. And then it started to work perfectly. So now we were able to to run this kind of AI technology on board the device. So we didn't need to send anything to the cloud, and it was running in one or two seconds instead of 30 seconds. And that truly enabled a real revolution in machine vision. And that's what we've been enjoying these past few years, we're now starting to see phenomenal technologies which can generate very believable content, which can generate all kinds of solutions. Um, You just basically give it an objective and it will work out how to get there and all of the steps in between. Mm. And it's this kind of ability to solve so many different problems in the world which is making AI so useful.
0: This is where we get a little philosophical because you've mentioned intelligence and problem solving. And maybe we have to step back and understand it a little bit because what you've described now seems very much to be in line, aligned with how nature solves that problem. How we've evolved as a species to become intelligent, i.e. that we don't have that fixed programming in our head. That determines every type of behavior because we have to learn a lot. We're programmed with certain behaviors from the offset, certain reflexes, but everything else we learn. So there's very sort of malleable intelligence there, where we have to learn within certain parameters, and therefore our understanding of intelligence maybe is being challenged. It's not necessarily more like machine; it's more like nature. So. Maybe help us out here a little bit now. Define for us maybe a little bit about what is the problem we're trying to solve here with AI in the first place.
1: My, my definition of intelligence would be the ability to to look at different potential paths and you know make a, a rational choice of which one is best. And I think all intelligences, from from extremely simple things like uh, you know single celled organisms upwards, have you know an ability to to make choices to say hmm food is probably more in this way or you know i'm intrigued by this thing i'm going to go and have a look at it and pay pay it some attention um, and that that's that's really what we have with machines but it isn't quite cognitive intelligence it's not quite um thinking about stuff it's really it's more of artificial intuition, really, than artificial intelligence, and I think that's that's one of the things that um, people don't always quite quite grasp that what we have today is technologies which can replicate what the human brain does in about one second or less of thinking, what Daniel Kahneman would would call the fast mode of thinking, System One. You know, the things we do without really thinking about it often. So, for example, in one second of a human brain power time, we might recognize an object or recognize whether a face is somebody we know, or we can transcribe between languages or between um, text and speech, for example. And we can take that that one second moment and we can put them in a line and create kind of a a string of moments, if you will. from that, we can do things like pilot a vehicle or make a prediction about where something's going to be, you know, uh, and kind of head it off, <laughs> basically. You know, in in all of these areas that we humans use our mostly intuitive way of thinking, machines are now starting to become superhuman. They are able to do these narrowly focused tasks in ways that are often as good or even better than human beings. But it will take time for more advanced sort of cognitive thinking to come out. We don't really have the technology available to do that just yet, but there are, there are some emerging technologies which are taking us in that direction. Uh, reinforcement learning is one very exciting technology. I'm sure many of you out there have heard of things like Uh, AlphaGo, you know, this um, technology by DeepMind, which has been able to master the game of Go uh, better than than human players, which was something that was not foreseen for, you know, people expected that might happen in 10 or 15 years and not presently. But now we're seeing these same technologies being able to master quite complex games like uh, um, StarCraft II, which has very um, complex, multiple uh, layers of information and strategies. And that is getting into a more cognitive way of thinking. There's another form of learning as well called meta-learning. And this is about, instead of trying to focus on one narrow area and get really, really good at it, they train or sort of cross-train an algorithm on multiple different Potential scenarios, so they don't make it really good at one thing. They make it okay mediocre at like a hundred different things, but actually that translates into something that is um, able to generalize much better and deal with um, less uh, well-known or well-defined situations So these, these emerging technologies which are a subset of deep learning are gradually taking us in the direction of more cognitive thought
0: So there seems to be some defined stages when it comes to AI here, and maybe we can just spend a little time unpacking those. So for the listeners, we can see the progression of artificial intelligence from 2012. You marked out that point where there was the arrival of a new set of computational algorithms, which really enabled the beginning of what we understand today in the machine learning as sort of more modern machine learning specific tasks as well. Um, especially in pattern recognition. The second stage then being where that, that group of algorithms or that philosophy has enabled machines, AI to solve problems, which you talk about, as sort of existing at the subconscious level of human existence, like, you know, the, the day-to-day tasks, like driving a car. You can drive a car without thinking about it. It comes naturally. And now we've seen that AI can drive a car far more safely and successfully and probably more efficiently than a human being, such that the future of autonomous cars is not far away. It's not philosophically for us a different dimension we can just see it as a, a quantitative uh, increase in where we are today so it's just a matter of time so that's stage 2 and stage 3 is this more general intelligence the meta that you talk about now which is where you take that specific problem solving skill They take it out of the domain and start applying it to new, unseen areas, where you would take your general problem-solving skills and solve those new areas better. You know, does that then require just more firepower, if you will, or does that shift require a a philosophical, a different way of thinking about AI?
1: Mm. I think um, having lots of computational grunt definitely helps uh, and that is that is one of the major factors why uh, why we've seen a real takeoff in the past few years in this area particularly as machine learning technology has now able to access gpus graphical processing units the the graphics chips in our uh, in our pc smartphones etc and, of course, these, these evolved primarily back during the mid to late 90s. We started to get 3D uh, on our gaming consoles in big ways and, you know, the first graphics cards for your PC that you could play Quake and Quake 2 on, like the uh, voodoo cards and things. And these were a new way of thinking about complex computational problems. Basically, the idea was to break up a complex problem which used to be worked on by a CPU, doing you know linear calculations um, in one central point, and rather to break up a difficult problem that needs to be worked on in real time, of course, and work on it in parallel in little pieces, and then finally put the output together and spit it out onto the screen and Strangely enough, this, this form of, of parallel computation is very similar to how our brains work. It's much closer to how our brains work. You know, we don't have a CPU. You know, we have, um, we have 86 uh, billion or so neurons in, in our brain. Um, they're all working more or less in parallel. And so nowadays we have graphics cards with, you know, thousands of cores on them, and this is very, very useful for machine intelligence and for um, uh, blockchain-related computation as well. So that's that's one factor. Um, I would say that's maybe sort of thirty percent of the reason why we've seen this this real leap forward in AI. I would say sixty percent of the reason, in my view, is actually data. So even a very intelligent brain is only as useful as the experiences that it has to draw upon, right? You know, if you have an IQ of 160, but you've uh, hardly ever left the house, uh, you're not going to be very experienced about the world, and your ability to use that intelligence is going to be limited. So machines are very similar. They are dependent on data. Data is how we provide them with a virtual form of experience about the world. And in machine learning terms, we call collections of data to teach machines. We call those data sets, right? And we need lots of data to train machines. And ideally, that data should be in an orderly form, which is well tagged, usually tagged by humans. And, you know, which is clean, which has few aberrations or missing pieces and that sort of thing. Now, we have a lot of data at our disposal because since the time of the dawn of agriculture, about, you know, about 10,000 years ago, give or take, everyone who has ever lived on this planet together over 10,000 years, created about five billion gigabytes of data, It's about five exabytes of data, which is a vast amount, of course. And yet, thanks to the power of the internet, thanks to machines processing information for storing it, moving it about, that same amount of information that took 10,000 years to create was doubling every 10 hours by the year 2010 and presently it's doubling less than every 30 seconds so we're drowning in data you know and if you think about it you know the world wide web was just text and a few very low resolution images and now it's streaming 4k video and you know all of our like health data watch data uh, smart contracts and locational data and Each of these layers of information adds context and color and clarity to other forms of information. And so there's a network effect where just like an illustration, you know, speaks a thousand words to a piece of text and gives a lot more context to it. These other layers of information make all of the other data more rich and more useful for machines as well as human beings. And so, from my perspective, the lion's share of, of the leap forward that we've seen is, has actually been um, because we have so much data and we can create very rich data sets to provide machines with virtual experiences. That leaves about 10%. And I would put 10% of the progress down to algorithms. So we've seen a lot of interesting new technologies that have been created. And... Um, but most of them were actually created back during maybe the 1980s. Uh, the the CNN technology that I mentioned, that's very good for understanding visual information, was first presented uh, back around 1988. So it kind of kind of sat on the shelf, uh, not being not being used or deployed, until technology had caught up, um, where we could begin to deploy that. But still, you know, algorithms are about 10% of the factor of AI.
0: Mm. Have we been here before? What I'm wondering about now is have we been in a situation like this before? Or, I guess the question I should be asking is where and when have we been here before? That there's been a rapid expansion of technology and philosophically we haven't caught up or we're still thinking about it in the old world terms. And I think in the context of AI and big data as well, you talk about the 60% data. Let's think about that in how that's affecting business and consumers now. You can go to China, you can walk into a hair salon, you can um, book an appointment, walk into the hair salon, I should say, and then you know have a great experience purely by the fact that it recognizes your face when you walk through the door through facial recognition technology. And that technology is connected to your alipay account so you can pay or it pays for you and you can walk out of the store with a great experience it's seamless yet the flip side of that maybe and where we philosophically haven't caught up yet is the probably more dystopian view of the application of that technology where you have um, the stories coming out of China of how and the rest of the world but obviously China on such large scale and such you know, billions of data sets of people's faces being um, kept on record on databases and then that used for um, you know all kinds of different purposes. One example being is catching jaywalkers in Guangzhou in China, crossing the road, matching their faces to a data set, then sending them a letter or a WeChat message and saying, you've been fined for jaywalking. So, you can see both applications here. We we get the technology. We can see how it impacts and improves and affects our day-to-day lives. But have we been in a situation before where philosophically we haven't caught up? We're still thinking about it in old world terms.
1: Yeah. I think I think that there have been times in history where people have suffered a bit of a a narcissistic injury. In the sense that the world has changed very quickly, and you know, sometimes people's values or people's expectations of what the world should be have changed very rapidly. And that's that's caused quite a bit of consternation at times. You know, during the 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 Renaissance, Copernicus and Galileo pointed out that. You know, the earth travels around the sun and not vice versa. And that was, you know, quite controversial uh, at the time. And I think that that, that led people to, to begin to, to question some of the teachings um, that, were, that were handed down. And that led to, you know, quite a schism of some people wanting to create a reformation and other people wanting to hold to the old ways and you know later in history darwin comes out with you know the origin of species and the descent of man and that was another very controversial idea and people said this is fascinating it's an amazing idea but we mustn't tell anyone you know it's it's too controversial and it's too difficult in in, term, in terms of understanding what it means for for human beings and society and our place in the universe you know and nietzsche warned that a time of nihilism was coming you know god is dead and we have killed him like the the assumed source of our values and their integrity has been questioned and i think nietzsche was in many ways prophetic because The first and second world wars showed us how, you know, the rise of nationalism and totalitarianism and the mechanization of um, very human conflict activities could be so truly horrible. And ah, my my concern a little bit is that we might be coming to another kind of set of narcissistic challenges for our, our species. As we wrestle with um, some of the 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 truths that machine intelligence tells us, perhaps about ourselves, you know, that perhaps a lot of our values aren't necessarily terribly consistent, or that um, maybe we don't have quite as much free will as we tend to believe that we do, and you know, all kinds of uh, questions about genetics and things like that that we might find rather uncomfortable, and you know, my my fear is that not so much that ai will run away from us but that we will run away from ai that um it will create such a uh amount of angst in our society that we will find it challenging to to process and to to integrate it into our society in a way that is uh, healthy i think we have wonderful opportunities to do so um but it might be a little bit of a bumpy ride Uh, as we
0: get there, you know? Yeah, that bumpy ride is going to be, I'm sure, manifest when people um, ask you questions. When you come to Singapore now, is typical kind of questions that people ask. are going to be, how does this affect me? You know, we've moved on from the, the, the starting point of this won't affect me to AI will affect me. How will it affect me? And what's interesting is it tends to be now those highly skilled and qualified professionals who are most curious about the impact of AI take medicine, for example, and I'm not picking on medicine um, for any reason, apart from the fact that it involves a lot of very highly specialized and skilled tasks. If you are a, a consultant surgeon or, or doctor diagnosing cancer from scans, um that, that's a human task and it requires a lot of experience and pattern recognition in its own term. Yet now we've seen that AI can do that far more effectively and with a much higher success rate than the error rate of a human being. So you then wonder, how does that affect these highly skilled medical professionals if a computer can now do this job so much better? So... They're going to be asking that question, how does it affect me? Do I have to out-compete the computer? Do I have to be better at diagnosing these cancer scans than the computer? Do I have to change what I do? Or do I have to, in some way, to ride this bumpy ride, be somehow more human? Firstly,
1: for the moment, anyway, um, machine intelligence is, is still limited to things which are pre-cognitive, right? Which are more about pattern recognition rather than uh, thinking or you know, interacting in, in complex social ways. Machine intelligence tends to offer an ability to replace tasks, right? But typically, it, it doesn't replace jobs. Um, there, there's rather few jobs which are involved of, um, you know, only one task. Most, most jobs have many different tasks involved in them, um, particularly the more rewarding of, of jobs. I think rather than frame it as, you know, machines potentially threatening to take over one's livelihood or something, I think it's it's better to frame it as a tremendous opportunity for machines to augment one's daily working life, to uh, to give us a heads up, you know, to provide a bit of a, a, an engine warning light, right? You know, have you paid attention to this thing that you otherwise might not notice that might be quite important? That's what machines are doing for us in, for example, the world of medicine. They are helping us to um, to create extra contrast in medical information that wasn't possible before, you know, to say, hmm, here's an interesting thing. What do you make of this? You know, this might be worth paying attention to. Similarly, um, in the world of law, machines are now able to to help out with the process of Digging into jurisprudence, you know, looking at a past case law and trying to figure out What cases might be relevant or even in the world of patents to figure out, you know, what? um, prior art might be out there that might be uh, pertinent and so machines can really help us to to do our jobs uh, in a more efficient way and in a way that leaves us an ability to work on things that are more interesting or that we are best suited to. For example, kind of interpersonal things, you know. Um, medicine is not just about looking at, at x-rays. It's it's much more about bedside manner and, you know, the sort of the, the pastoral side of, of medical care. And, you know, a lot of people find that very rewarding. So I think... There are few jobs which are likely to be directly threatened by AI. However, sometimes the way that we teach people is by treating them like an AI. So for example, a, um, you know, a, a junior lawyer might be obliged to basically sit in a basement and just dig through books, you know, um, and that's like ingesting massive amounts of information and that kind of is acting like a like a data set for our human brain whether it's on a conscious or conscious unconscious level you know your data set is your destiny whatever you pay attention to a lot your brain will kind of reconfigure itself to make sense of and if machines are doing a lot of that work then that opens questions of how do we teach young lawyers um, about the space you know mm. um, so there are still quite a few questions uh, to remain of, of you know how certain people learn certain things if machines are doing most of that work themselves
0: well you've established quite um, incisively that uh, you know it, it, training a junior lawyer to simply look through case law it just doesn't make sense now because in time if not now AI can do that so much better So why would we train highly paid, by average terms, um, professionals to do that task, which then leads us to the bigger question about what then happens as we sort of move up the chain of skill. So a junior lawyer is effectively um, somebody who masters very specific tasks which uh, a senior partner would probably give them to. Yet a senior partner probably has mastered lots of specific tasks and over time layered a general layer of intelligence across those tasks and added in some human factors like relationships and building their network and general advice and so on. So can that be replaced? And what kind of implications does that have to us and society if Really, that is something that humans um, can be replaced in doing by machines. If that, you know, now it's just a matter of time. That's the question that really people want to know the answer to. Can machines replace humans at that level? Yes, we know they can do the tasks, but can they replace us at the human level? Can, for example, AI replace the partner within the law firm? Now that gets interesting because if the answer is yes, then we have to ask the question, why do we need human beings at all? So where are we going with this? Is it reality? Is it now just a matter of time before AI evolves up the general intelligence learning curve? Yeah,
1: I think um, I think it's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, we, we don't just have 20 or 40 or 50 or 70 years of of experience as human beings we are the culmination of you know, 600 million years of evolution there there is a lot of there's a lot of microcode in there <laughs> which has been very 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 finely tuned and which you know drives us to do all kinds of things you know that's, our emotions, in many ways, are like little heuristic algorithms. You know we feel emotion, and it it primes us to do stuff, right? To run away or to get angry and indignant and and fight our corner, or you know to just become um, absolutely obsessed with making somebody as, as happy and comfortable as as possible. You know we have all of these different layers of thinking. Which, which drives our behavior in different ways. And it's gonna be very, very complex for machines to truly replicate that anytime soon. You know, maybe in 30 to 40 years, perhaps in that direction, but uh, not anytime in the next generation or so. But that doesn't mean that, um, that machine intelligence in its current forms is not incredibly useful, because it is. Um, Today we have the ability to basically give any kind of problem that we can roughly specify, even ones that we can't really specify very well, and machines can help us to to find solutions, to generate a series of different options that will take us in that direction. For example, Think of a a bicycle frame, right? So you want to have a maximum amount of mass, you want to have a minimum amount of strength, and um, within a certain range of the cost of materials and ease of manufacture and things like that. And by setting those constraints, we can uh, enable a generative algorithm to basically create potential solutions to that problem and we can kind of evolve them over time we can say oh i like that one i like that one and i like that one of maybe 20 different options and then they kind of evolve and grow and grow and get more and more sophisticated and that's that's what we have today the ability for machines to to solve any kind of problem that we can conceive of and it's a little bit like like motive power in in the 19th century and electricity in the 20th century. Because at first, we didn't really know what to do with those things. Um, it took time to recognize that um, that not only can we put engines in cars, that we can put them in airplanes as well. Um, it it took time to recognize that we could do more with electricity than just you know lights and heaters and things. We can do things like manipulate radio waves and electromagnetism mm. and so we are kind of at, at the beginning of understanding just all of the ways that we can apply this amazing utility of machine intelligence
0: i think the challenge at the beginning isn't it that the it's difficult to prophesize or foresee what happens next everybody talks about disruption but really what does it look like if you were to go back into the the, the early days of electricity, nobody could have foreseen what that could have done for society and the impact it had and how it changed business and the thoughts about business over not just the next 20 years, but over the next 100, 200 years. And similarly with other technologies, the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press, nobody could have foreseen that that didn't just Create the democratization of thought and literature, but it reformed society. It changed. It changed. It, you know, gave birth to democracy. It gave birth to freedom of thought. It created an environment where people started thinking about their relationship between mankind and the contract with society and the people who ruled them and so on. So nobody could have foreseen that that innocuous technology created this sort of, these ripples of change throughout time. Similarly, with AI, you know, how is this going to affect us? Because we don't know what this means. You've already mentioned what this could mean, but nobody knows for sure. And the problem with this and the early stage is that a lot of the discussion is focused on the dystopian nature or the distraction, the gimmicky nature of AI, for example, I run just randomly, as a case study, I run an airline um, and think about it in the context of what this means to me. Well, I collect a lot of data about my passengers. I collect data about transactions, footfall, what they eat on the plane, you know, how long it takes them to offload from the plane, cargo details, etc billions of data sets. yet if I was to talk to anybody about AI, the first conversation might be about robots flying planes. To me, you know, the real conversation is what you've highlighted here for us in business. The real conversation about AI has to be less about the more tangible aspects of it and the more media friendly aspects, which is robots and the replacing of human beings to really where the heavy lifting of AI is going to be done in data, you know, is the data that my company generates the byproduct of technology, i.e. like the wood shavings on the factory floor, or is it something far more valuable because it is so important for us to focus on the right area rather than focus on the robot versus the pilot discussion. In AI, we've got to be focusing down at where the heavy lifting is done in that data discussion.
1: I like I like the analogy of shavings, as you put it, but I'd, I'd maybe put it as um, as shavings of gold lying on on the, the workshop floor, which are kind of being trodden on and and forgotten about, you know, until some some enterprising so and so sweeps them up and discovers, you know, there's there's quite a lot of value that's 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 been Rather ignored. Data is incredibly important. And yes, the most valuable companies in the world are the big Silicon Valley companies that have, you know, they're sitting on tons of data, they're sitting on lots of processing capabilities, and they've lots of smart people making clever algorithms. You know, they have first mover advantage in in using this new incredible utility of machine intelligence. So it kind of makes sense that they've leapt ahead of ExxonMobil and Pepsi and things to be the most valuable brands in the world. But most of the Silicon Valley companies are focused heavily on consumer data and they don't have necessarily very much access to business data. Um, The the transactions between businesses, the processes within businesses. how customers interact with with businesses day to day and their actions uh, within a a flow of um, activities, as you might see with a passenger on an airplane, as you kind of give with with your example. And so it's a little bit like, like I see companies sitting on mountains and we have a good idea that Inside those mountains, there is a lot of um, gold and a lot of jewels and things, uh, just waiting for us to to dig them out. And I think one of the most important aspects is to do what's called a data audit, basically to understand what data you have, um, where it's located, uh, who has control over that data, the the state of that data, whether it is messy. Uh, whether it has good integrity or not, Um, as well as, of course, some of the regulatory uh, issues that may be attached to that data or may not. And a little bit of who in your network that you're not necessarily competing with, but who might have data which might be very useful if correlated, if kind of brought together with your own. And by beginning to understand those kinds of questions, we can understand what kind of gas we can put in this machine intelligence dynamo that we that we can deploy these days. I think a lot of people assume that if you wanna work in AI, uh, you need to hire like six Stanford PhDs or something. That's not really the case. Um, there's there's massive amounts of technology out there that is kind of plug and play you can more or less download it and with a weekend and you know a bit of knowledge of something reasonably simple like like python scripting language you know you can string together something something quite sophisticated just kind of out of the box and so my recommendation is Not to try to reinvent the wheel, but kind of see what's out there and to try to empower people within your company, not necessarily within your IT department, but my recommendation is to allow anyone in the company that wants to learn a bit about machine intelligence and a bit about um, Python, which is one of these programming languages, which is particularly useful for this. I think they should have an opportunity to do so because if somebody comes in from outside and says, I can wave a wand, I can solve problems, uh, it's quite difficult for them to truly understand where the problems are. But if you happen to be in accounts receivable, you happen to be in HR, you happen to be in the mailroom, you, know, you might be able to, to spot all kinds of problems, small problems maybe um but ones which are annoying and which take up you know a lot of your time and which people would would quickly get behind solving you know um and so if you empower people to solve problems where they find them that's where you're likely to to come um on ingenious solutions that maybe transform your entire business and possibly become something that you can sell on to others you know because You've developed this new capability kind of to scratch your own itch. But maybe that can transform an entire industry as well.
0: It would make for a great case study, wouldn't it, if you could demonstrate within your department how you've used data and used machine learning tools to really, you know, yield some insights. But is is that realistic? I mean, if you took John or Jenny in accounts receivable and gave them a weekend to learn Python code, would they be able to come back? with results and say, look, this is how we've applied AI to these data sets, and this is the insight that we've yielded from it. It sounds optimistic. I'm sure a key part of this is creating the right right, uh, environment for people to make those decisions and the right business culture that can empower people at that level. But can we? I mean, it'd be great if we can. And we could, even with simple tools and simple applications, show how AI works.
1: Yes, yes. I strongly believe so. I mean, I think, I think the, the, the weekend example is, is the culmination of having learned, you know, a bit of scripting language and sort of understood the general aspects of machine intelligence, etc. But having done that, you know, a good weekend um, and, and a couple of strong coffees, you know, might just might just create that kind of solution um if those kind of prerequisites have been given to people and they've been empowered in that way there's there's so much technology out there which you know you can just more or less download and and start start playing around with there's even technologies that you can you can do things in browser and watch how you know adding a line of code changes the the machine's understanding of a piece of data you know these are fantastic tools for for understanding how the world works and how how machine intelligence can be can be harnessed and so i think it's it can be surprisingly simple um to apply these things to all kinds of different problems and i think what's more difficult is is really getting the good data in the first place and i think there's there's tremendous opportunities in just basic data science as well because i get a lot of people coming to me saying you know how do we implement ai in our in our business who maybe haven't really done much in terms of data science in the company before and sometimes what they really need is a couple of data scientists to come in and work with their data rather than ai per se because you know they might see a 30% improvement in some critical business process, um, just with a a bit of basic business um, uh, intelligence and a bit of data science, um, let alone AI per Mm. se.
0: Well, now, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, enjoyed talking to you, loved delving into the historical context, not because it's indulgent, but because it helps us really understand what comes next. We don't have to be reinventing the wheel to understand how disruptive technologies really impact us in society and business as well. So that was very useful. And hopefully you're going to share more insights when you come to Singapore and speak. Looking forward to that very much so. And for those business leaders out there who are looking to get started in this area, and rather than just sort of treat this as an academic exercise, how you can actually get started momentum, step one in applying these ideas inside your organization, what would be the quick win here?
1: You know, I think if, if you can find a small problem, which isn't mission critical necessarily, you know, I, I think something that's, that's simple, that isn't too important, but that people find annoying. And, you know, people would, would kind of like to see resolved or see done in a better way. If you can find that kind of little annoying itch and help people to scratch it with machine learning, I think that's, that's going to be a winner internally. That's going to be very good for, for the company's morale.
0: Excellent. That's Nell Watson, everybody, machine learning engineer and tech philosopher. Thank you so much, Nell.
1: Thank you, Graeme. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners as well.